All right, such a joy to just be able to walk through this incredible book. This is probably my favorite book in the Bible, but I say that about every book that I preach through. Discipling the Word of God has been my life work. But um, uh, there's going to come a day that I'll leave it all behind. You know, the Word of God uh, is eternal in the heavens, but when we get to heaven, we're not going to be reading books. We're not going to be exegeting paragraphs. We're not going to be looking at nouns and verbs and syntax. We're going to be in the presence of God. And the scripture says they will all be taught by God. And uh, 1 Corinthians 13 says when we, uh, you know, when we were children, we uh, used childish things. And that refers to really all the spiritual gifts, including preaching and teaching. But when we get to heaven, we'll put childish things behind us and we will see in his presence and know him as we have been fully known. So that's very exciting. Let's pray again. Lord, thank you for this time together in the word. I thank you for these dear people. I thank you for the way they've taken me in and loved us uh, and um, poured out their goodness on us. And I pray now as we continue our study in Philippians, give me grace to make it clear and all of us to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, even though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. All right, so as we are looking at this chapter, we see that there are some threats to the Philippian church that Paul has to address here. Paul ha- uh, sorry, Satan has three great attacks on the church, on the people of God. They're timeless in every generation. And the three attacks are false doctrine, worldliness, and persecution. These three are timeless assaults. Generally, in a geographical region, it's either going to be worldliness or persecution, generally not both. Basically, the world offers you a treasure or offers you a beating, generally not both. So if the surrounding culture is favorably disposed in some way to Christianity, like in the Bible Belt in America, the temptation is going to be worldliness. Uh, If the surrounding culture, like in Muslim countries or communist countries, is hostile to Christianity, then it's going to offer persecution, beatings, imprisonment, and death. But all over the world, there is false doctrine. One of the greatest challenges facing the house church in China is false doctrine. And we see this problem everywhere. And it is far more significant than the other two. False doctrine assaults the message that alone can bring salvation. It assaults the gospel. And so in Philippians 1, Paul doesn't seem to care very much that his enemies are preaching the true gospel to get him in trouble. It doesn't seem to bother him. It's like, whatever. (laughs) They're preaching Christ. And in this I rejoice, even though they're making trouble for me. Now, for them it's going to be a problem on Judgment Day. If you're preaching the true gospel from false motives, or you are a wicked person and an unconverted person preaching the true gospel, it's going to go very hard for you on Judgment Day. But still you preach the, the true gospel. But in Galatians it's an entirely different song. In Galatians, he is savage toward the Judaizers and toward the church for putting up with them. And he's actually very hard on the church. Local churches are responsible, ultimately, for the teaching and preaching they get. Obviously, the man of God that stands up and unfolds the word, he's accountable for what he says, definitely. But if the church puts up with false doctrine, then shame on the church. You should get rid of false teachers. That's why Paul is hard on the Galatians. He's not hard on the Judaizers directly. They're they're heretics. But he's hard on them for believing the message. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, he says. And so he's very hard on them because they are falling into this false gospel, which Paul says in Galatians is no gospel at all. It's a gospel of a combination of, of faith and works, of the cross and the law. And you mix them together. And so you have to become a Jew in order to be saved. You have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And you have to follow the laws of Moses. You see all this in in Acts 15. Unless the Gentiles are circumcised and obey the law of Moses, they cannot be saved. And that's the very issue that Paul addresses in length, in great detail, in the book of Galatians. But he only lightly passes by it here in Philippians. It's the same heresy. Um, And so he is warning them concerning this arrogant religion of works. Now, essentially, I said there are 41,000 Christian denominations. I don't know how many world religions there are. But I think, one theologian said, and I think in some sense it's true, there really only are two religions. All right? 
There is a religion of self-salvation by works of various flavors. And there's a religion of grace through faith in Christ. That's Christianity. That's it. Those are, the, those are the two basic religions in the world. And all over the world, either you're going to try to save yourself by your own righteousness and your own works and offer your own works in place of your sins and try to pay for your sins, which almost everyone acknowledges that they have sinned. Now, I did meet one man in Haiti, 45-year-old man who claimed to be sinless. I found this troubling. And he wouldn't give up on it. I said, now, if I talk to your parents, what would they say? You know, did you ever disobey them? He didn't want to talk about that, but he claimed to be sinless. Almost everyone else, when you're sharing the gospel, they'll acknowledge that they've done wrong things. But their hope is that their good deeds will outweigh their bad. Do you ever hear this? I hear it all the time. That in some way there's a weighing here and the good deeds can outweigh the bad. And it's a faulty system straight through. Because first and foremost, you have no good deeds. There are no works that you have ever done that God uh, accepts as perfect or pure or blameless. Jesus said, no one is good but God alone. And so our deeds can never be pure because they come from a divided and impure heart. Our motives are not pure. So when we help the poor and needy, our motives are not pure. Even if we do something commanded by the word of God, our motives are not clean. So we have no good works. And secondly, we all know in the, in, in the courtroom, you can't plead that you gave to a charity if you're being charged with a crime. The judge is not interested in what you gave to a charity last year. Well, that's very, very good. We don't have time for it. Now, did you do it or not? That's what the, the court trial is all about. And then the, the judgment comes down. How much more than on judgment day? We cannot use good works to pay for sins because here's the one thing. Even if you had them, they were expected anyway. There's no extra, extra credit in this. You can never say, I did this thing that went beyond what was required. Everything good is required. You're supposed to love God with all your heart every moment and you're supposed to love your neighbors yourself and you can't do better than that and so it's just faulty straight through so we have to be immersed in this and understand this is the way the non-christian thinks and this is the way the apostle paul thought too this is the way the judaizers think and so he begins here in these first verses to address the problem of a false gospel and he tells them in philippi watch out for it so look what he says uh, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And we're going to talk about joy in the next message. He mentions it again and again. So I'm going to talk about joy, and guess what? I'm going to talk about joy again and then again. Joy and then more joy and then even more joy. So rejoice in the Lord. And it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. I'm not here preaching anything radically new. Basically, if I were to preach anything radically new, it would either be so minute and detailed as to be insignificant and not worth talking about, or it would be a heresy. Those are the two options. So I'm trying to remind you of things you have already heard and know, maybe in new ways, but you already know these things. I'm not preaching radically new ideas. Maybe there's an illustration or a putting together logically of some verses you hadn't heard before, but other than that, it's the same old teachings. And not only that, if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you have an anointing and you already know the truth. It's an interesting verse. Does that mean teachers like us are out of business? No, but what it means is that when we teach the truth, you have an internal um, person, the Holy Spirit, that says, yes, that's true, and then you accept it. And so you can recognize true teaching immediately if you're a child of God. And so you recognize this and, and you take it in, but still, so much of the preaching, teaching ministry of a healthy church is repetition. 
reminders. And there is no doctrine that, that so needs reminding again and again as justification by faith apart from works. This is the same thing that you must hear again and again. There has to be some repetition of it in every message. That your sins are made right through faith in Christ alone and not by works. And you have to be reminded of this again and again. Martin Luther said, beat them over the head with it. Now that's Luther. He's a rough man, all right? Beat them over the head with it. And then when you've beaten them, beat them some more. All right? He also said more tenderly, he said, it's very hard for a sinner to believe that God loves him. It's very hard for him to accept. And so he came back again and again to his central discovery that sinners are made right in the sight of God by a gift, by grace through faith in Christ and by no other way. And Paul says that. And what's so beautiful about Philippians 3, it's the best chapter in the entire New Testament for the combination of justification and sanctification. Really two kinds of righteousness that come together in a genuine Christian life. There is a righteousness that's given to you as a gift by grace through faith, imputed righteousness, the full righteousness of Christ, credited your account, and it's given to you as a gift, not by works of the law, not by your works of the law, given to you as a gift, and you are seen to be 100% righteous by imputation by a gift given to you. And it's right there in verse uh, 8 and 9. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. There it is. Philippians 3.9 is the imputed righteousness that is the gift of grace by faith. We are seen to be perfectly righteous in the sight of God. It's incredible. We are seen to be as righteous as Jesus. Let me push the language a little bit more. You're seen to be as obedient as Jesus. You obeyed the law of Moses as well as Jesus did. Like, no, I didn't. Well, it's true, you didn't. But as a gift of grace by faith, God sees you that way. He credits Christ's righteousness to you. It is a perfect righteousness credited to you. And in that righteousness, you will stand on judgment day and in no other. So that is the imputed righteousness of Christ given to you as a gift. He mentions it plainly there in verse 9. But the rest of the chapter, he talks about a race that he's running or a pressing, a forgetting what lies behind and a straining toward what lies ahead and a growing toward a righteousness that he's seeking after, that sanctification, holiness. And so these two together are very much the issue of pastoral ministry, that I'm very clear that forgiveness of sins and right standing with God comes by grace through faith and not by works. But if that has happened, it will result in a life of works and in progressive holiness and in growth in godliness. That is the genuine Christian life. And we have to do both of those. You have to have that sense of confidence, uh, of a right standing, a permanent right standing with God, and then a sense of pressing and striving and straining in the Christian life. And so he says all that, but he says, I I want to remind you of this uh, because it's no trouble for me to write these things you again, and it's a safeguard for you. I want to protect you, because there are false teachers out there. And he specifically has the Judaizers in mind. The Judaizers combined Jesus and Moses in a, in a poisonous way, saying you have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. And so he says, watch out for those dogs. He calls them dogs. Now, I would have to say the New Testament has almost a universally negative view of dogs. 
As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, it says concerning the New Jerusalem, outside are the dogs. I'm not a big dog fan. I know some of you probably love your little dogs. All right, We had that icebreaker, and many of you had dogs. I don't want to offend you about dogs. I'm just saying Paul uses the word differently than you might here. <laughs> so that's all I'm saying. I can't find a single good use of the word dog in the New Testament, but I'm sure that there are wonderful dogs back then too. What's that now? All right, there we go. Well, it's debatable. We'll have to talk later. I, I'm not sure that's a sweet thing, but all right, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. We could keep going, all right? Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw pearls before. There's a lot of... We'll keep going. Talk to me later. All right. That's, that's good. I love it. Well done. Well done. At any rate, here, there's no doubt he means it negatively. We can all agree about that. Watch out for those dogs. And by this, he definitely means the Judaizers, the false teachers. You have to watch your doctrine. You have to, you know, Steve as a preaching pastor, I as a we have to watch our life and our doctrine closely. We have to watch our articulation of the doctrine. And this is a dangerous thing, that you would allow the idea of works righteousness to creep in and think, because I've sinned, now I need to go do something good to pay for it. it it's there. It dogs me every day. Whenever I'm guilty or do something wrong, I feel like I need to do something to prove myself. I need to go do some works. No, you need to rest in Christ. You need to trust in Christ. That's it. It's the only covering and only forgiveness for sins there ever has been or ever will be. But these Judaizers, these dogs, he says, men who do evil, so for all of their claiming of works righteousness, they didn't lead very righteous lives. Those mutilators of the flesh, he calls them. He's talking about circumcision. And then he gives here in verse 3 what John MacArthur calls the best single verse definition of a Christian in the New Testament. Verse 3, Philippians 3, 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It's a three-part definition of a Christian. I wouldn't say it's comprehensive, but it's a very strong definition. We are the true circumcision, a spiritual circumcision. That's what he says. We're the ones that God accepts because the circumcision, he said, Romans 2, of the heart, not the flesh, We are the the true circumcision, the true Jews, true sons and daughters of Abraham. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let me take the middle one first. We boast, we make our boast in Jesus. We glory in him. We can't get enough of thinking about his achievements. We want to talk to people about the greatness of his character and the marvels of his deeds And we'll spend eternity doing it. We will spend eternity studying the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain for our sins. We're going to study his great power and his meek humility. We're going to study his character and his deeds forever. And we'll never get enough. Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. Isaiah 9. And so we're going to study him forever. Glory in Christ Jesus. Sometimes the word translated boast. But he is our boast. Let him who boasts, boast in Jesus. So he is our boast. And then go back to the first one. We worship by the Spirit of God. So that's the essence of it. Our, the Holy Spirit moves us to see the greatness of Christ. And through Christ, the greatness of God the Father. Because anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. And, the, and Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And so as you're looking at Jesus in the face of Christ, you see the greatness of the Father. And the glory of the Father. And so by the Spirit, we, can, we, we contemplate the greatness of God. And the Spirit moves us to worship. So we worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. And we reject. We put no confidence 
in our fleshly efforts, in our fleshly achievement. We, we become more and more disdainful of our self-efforts. We know that nothing good lives in us, that is in our flesh, and we, we are disdainful of it, and we will be glad to be done with it, amen? You will be glad to leave behind your mortal body and all of its sinfulness forever, at glorification you will. That's a good definition of a Christian. That's who we are. The, the Judaizers, they are not the genuine circumcision. They're not the true, the true followers of God. And then he says, uh, I put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now, Paul is very interesting. Paul spends a lot of time in Corinthians boasting. He, he's an interesting man, all right? It's like, if you want to know, I can do the resume thing. And here you know he's crossing swords with the Judaizers. So let's, let's do our Jewish thing here and let's see who wins. Because I did more of Judaism than anyone else of my generation. I was excelling in Judaism far beyond anyone else. I was running a race and I was lapping the field. And he lists his credentials here. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And by the way, don't you see that that's the essence of self-salvation? You're going to boast in yourself. And God didn't want to listen to it for all eternity. God did not want to listen to that forever. And so he humbled every one of us in a way, he saved every one of us in a way that just strips us of our pride. How's that? Well, he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, before you'd done anything good or bad. And then long before you were born, your Savior died for you and was raised for you. You didn't even, hadn't even been born yet and the work was done. And then someone told you a message and you heard it and believed it. You're going to boast about that? It's like going to the Grand Canyon and boasting in your eyesight. You're next to somebody who's like, oh, it's incredible. It's like, yeah, my eyesight's amazing. I, I'm seeing that. I mean, aren't you? It's like, what is there to boast about that you are taking in all this goodness as a gift? So he justifies you by faith, not by love or by courage or boldness or goodness, by faith, because there's no boasting in faith. There's nothing you can boast about. It's just passively receiving a gift like eyesight. He justifies you completely by faith. And then he says, okay, now work it out with fear and trembling. And after about two years, you're like, man, this is not going well. <laughs> I am a really wretched person. And the very thing I hate, I do. And the thing I want to do, I don't do. And I, it's like this day after day, year after year. Who will rescue me from this? And you'll be in that the rest of your life. And it's hard, and sanctification is humbling. But you make progress, and you become more and more like Christ, and it's a good thing. But boy, will you be glad to be done with it. And then, in an instant, he makes you perfect. When you're dead. Just like that, you're like Jesus. In two stages, your soul will, will be radiant and glorious and never again evil in any respect. And then at the right time, you'll get a resurrection body. The end of the chapter talks about it. You'll be raised in the same glory that Christ has in his resurrection body. You'll be conformed to him, and that's it. And what did you do for all that? And so you know what? You're going to spend eternity humbly praising God for your salvation. That's what's going to happen. Where was I? I have no idea. Oh, all right. So he's boasting. So he's going through his Jewish resume. What time do we get done? 12.15. Okay. Right on schedule. Wink, wink. All right. All right, all right, I will, I will get through it. But this may be one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I love uh, Philippians 3 and, the, and the, 
the way that Paul talks about it. It's actually sometimes hard for me to preach it without choking up because it's so powerful. But he looks at his own Jewish life, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That was my Jewish resume. Those are my credentials. And I'm telling you, I can go on, Paul would say. I can go on. I can tell more. I sat at Gamaliel's feet. I was instructed in the law. I was, I was a precisionist when it came to the word of God. I was meticulous in my, in my righteousness and my blame. I was blameless in all the law. I mean, you talk about Zechariah. What is more, Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. So what he's saying is I've looked at my resume and I realized in an instant it was worthless. And we all know what that instant was. It was on the road to Damascus when he was knocked to the ground by a blinding light, the light of the resurrected, glorified Christ. And he heard a voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Which may be one of the most mysterious brief questions in the entire Bible. Who are you, Lord? Whoever you are, you're Lord. But then the answer crushed him, crushed his worldview forever. I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. At that moment, what do you think he thought about his Jewish righteousness? It was gone. He knew it was not enough. And what he got in that blinding, literally blinding glory, is he got a foretaste of what it would be like to be in the presence of God with that righteousness. The tattered, filthy rags of that righteousness would not stand up on Judgment Day. It's just insufficient. But he didn't get killed. He wasn't killed. He was given work to do. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Oh, I'm not going to die? No. And I think when he saw Christ, he saw the glory of Christ, it set in him a yearning to see it again. I want to see that glory again. I want to be where all that glory comes from, the radiant source of all that glory. I want to be with Jesus. I want to know him. For the rest of his life, he was thirsty. He was satisfied and thirsty at the same time. Satisfied with Christ, but wanting more. And so that's what he got. He knew his righteousness was nothing. And so it was crushed by that one moment. He considered it rubbish, filth, and he said it was worth losing everything. Now you think about what he's talking about there. Everything of value in this world he lost. He was a ladder, he was a ladder climber. He was in good with the, the religious powers that be back then. And there was money in that. Don't, don't underestimate. If you knew Annas and Caiaphas and then their successors, and they were making huge money on the sacrificial system and all that, and uh, you had a wealthy life, you had a powerful life, you were in charge. Uh, he was their right-hand man. He was, he was in, inside track. And he gave it all away. When he became a Christian and preached in the synagogue at Damascus that Jesus was Lord, he lost it all. And he said, it's worth losing. And uh, you think about all the things you value. Think about your physical health. Think about your family relations. Think about your career, freedom. What did Paul lose for Jesus? Lost it all. 
lost it all. And he said, actually, it's like nothing. I've lost nothing. It was David Livingston that uh, he talked about his missionary life in Africa. And people would ask him about the sacrifices he made for Jesus. He said, I never made a sacrifice. When you consider what God has done for us in Christ, what Christ has done, and what he offers us eternally, it's not right to speak of sacrifice. And this is a man who had given a lot. And Paul would say the same thing. I never made a sacrifice. These things were rubbish. And anything earthly is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, he says, that I may be found, uh, that, I, that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now, I want to say something to you. We're about to go into one of the most powerful sections on sanctification. All right? Very important. Forgetting what lies behind, pressing toward what lies ahead, going after perfection every day. That's sanctification. But here's the thing. When you die, if you know you're dying, if you're on your deathbed, you're in the ICU, and it doesn't always happen. Sometimes people die suddenly, heart attack they didn't know was coming, or a, or a car accident or something else. It does happen. But from time to time, people know that they're dying, and their families gather around them, and they're aware that their day has come. At that point, if you're a Christian, at that point, you will be thinking about imputed righteousness. You'll be thinking about this, a righteousness that comes by faith and not by works. That's what you'll be thinking. You'll be done with your race. You'll be done putting sin to death, thank God. You'll be done with everything except one thing. I'll give you one more work to do, and that's die well. <laughs> die evidently trusting in Jesus. Make your last word something about Jesus. <laughs> Other than that, you have nothing more to do. And in that righteousness, you will pass on into eternity, out of this world into the next. And you will know it's sufficient for you. So that's what he says. I want to know Christ. He says, I want, I yearn for that, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And then in verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So you see there the drive inside the Apostle Paul. He has a drive and it's, it's totally focused on the person and the worth of Christ. All I want is to know him better. And I would just commend that to you as the drive, the motive of your life. I want every day to know Jesus better. I want him to reveal himself to me more. And do you not see where he says it's going to happen mostly? I'm not saying that he can't reveal himself to you in a beautiful sunrise or sunset or in your favorite meal or being surrounded by loved ones or at your own birthday party. Um, I'm not saying that all those good blessings aren't grounds for giving thanks, but he mostly reveals himself when you're in suffering. And he reveals himself even better when you're in extreme suffering. And Paul knew that better than we do. And he said, what I want to know is I want to know Christ in the suffering. I want to learn how to become like him in his death. I want to die like Jesus. And Paul says in another place, he says, I die daily. Do you know what those words mean? I die daily. I mean it, brothers. He says that. I die every day. What he means is just what Jesus said. If you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You, want to, you have to die daily. Jesus said it in Luke. Take up your cross daily and follow me. You're, you're doing uh, dress rehearsal for your final moments on earth. You're, you've died every day, and now you're really literally going to die. And so you have to die to witness. You have to die to share the gospel. As I was flying here from Toronto to St. John's, I was sitting next to a, 
a young man named Michael. He was a 16-year-old student studying for tests next week. Um, a studious young man wants to be a chemical engineer. So we struck up a conversation. It was going pretty well until I started talking about spiritual things. Uh, then it didn't go so well. But I, you know, I forged ahead, and I, I, the whole flight, it was a long flight, too, and the whole flight, I'm like feeling the weight of responsibility to share with this young man. And he had no interest in talking to me about spiritual things. I have felt that death more times than I can count. It would be just so much more easy for me to read, easier for me to read a magazine or put, put in my earbuds and listen to some music. And, and I'm not saying I didn't do some of that because it was a three-hour flight, but I mean, you know, when he was available, when he wasn't studying, I took out my earbuds and I put things down and I struck up a conversation again. And because we'd already talked about some spiritual things, he already was a little reticent to talk to me, phase two. Um, but we kept, kept going, and in the end, I shared God, man, Christ's response with him. I told him that someday he was going to die, he needed to, he needed to know Christ. And, you know, I urged him to, to read the Gospel of Mark uh, or any gospel, and, you know, he, he thanked me. And then that was at night. Probably will never see him again. But to be a witness, you have to die. You have to have a sense of that death. And Paul knew that. And he said, I want to know Christ I want to know him in his death. I want to know him in his suffering. Now, uh, a few of you came up and talked to me afterwards about Gethsemane. And, you know, you have your own Gethsemanes. You have your own time that God uh, hands out a form of his cup and wants you to drink. You're not going to drink Christ's cup. But remember James and John came and wanted to sit at Jesus' right and his left in his kingdom? Remember that? Actually, their mother. And they're behind their mother. I mean, the, sh the shame. Grown men. And Jesus didn't answer her, he answered them. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? You remember their answer? We can. <laughs> you don't know the cup. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And then when the ten heard about that, they were indignant with James and John because they were angling for position in the kingdom. He said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is he saying? If you want to sit near me, you need to be like me. In suffering service. You put the two together. Drink from his cup and serve. So suffer while serving like he did and you'll get a place of honor in the kingdom. Shrink back from it and don't serve others and don't suffer much. You'll get a lower place in the kingdom. We don't all have equal glory and equal position in the kingdom. And so there are places at his right and his left, there are places of honor in heaven. And those are given to those who suffer and serve. And so Paul had a yearning, an ambition to do that. He said, I want to know Jesus. And I'm not even looking about my place of honor. What I want to know is I want to know Christ. I want to know him in his death and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I think this is the hardest thing there is in the Christian life. I don't think there's anything harder. That basically the Holy Spirit gets you up every day and dresses you and sends you into battle against your flesh. And he tells you to die to die to yourself and not give in to that lust and not give in to that temptation. And he tells you to die as a witness and go share even though you're shamed or humiliated or rejected. 
It's a form of death, and he wants you to do it. And without that suffering and that dying, you will not make progress in the internal journey of holiness or the external journey of gospel advance. You have to suffer and have to die. And Paul knew that. And he said, I want, to, I want that. I want to become conformed in his death and so somehow to share in the resurrection from the dead. You're like, well, wait a minute. Now, Paul was justified. He said it back in verse 9. He had gained the righteousness that is by faith. All right? But he's saying, I need to run this race after that if I want to attain to the resurrection from the dead. There is a race to be run. Sanctification is essential to our salvation. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so we have to run. We have to put sin to death. We have to flee the evil culture that we live. And in that way, we will share the resurrection from the dead. And then he says this, not that I have already already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. So keep hold of that, all right? I have not yet become perfect, not in my soul, not in my body. I've not obtained all this. It's not mine yet. I do not teach perfectionism. You will not attain it in this world, but you must pursue it in this world every day. Every moment you must pursue perfection. And Paul does that. Look what he says. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on. This is very hard to understand, but I want to just unfold the grammar. It's very challenging. But he said, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So, all right. How do you make sense of that? All right. Jesus took hold of Paul in the sovereign grip of grace, for a purpose. That's what he's saying. Jesus seized me and took hold of me for a purpose. What is that purpose? Paul's perfection. Jesus took hold of Paul that he would be perfect like Christ, conformed to Christ in every respect. He seized him by a grip of grace and created inside Paul by the Spirit a yearning for the perfection that Jesus wanted for him. And so Jesus wants his elect to be perfect like he is, conformed to Christ in all respects. And so he seizes you by grace and will never let you go. And when he seizes you, he creates inside of you a drive to be holy and perfect like he is. And he says, I press on for that holiness, that sanctification. And so it's a combination of security and continual effort. You are striving in absolute security. Other than that, it's pretty scary. I was reading, or actually watched a a video about a a rock climber named Alex Honnold who climbed the El Capitan in Yosemite free solo. No ropes, no partners, just a film crew. Hands, special shoes, some chalk, and up he goes. And I'm telling you, there is a cliff that's smooth and comes out like that, and he's just hanging by his fingers. And I'm like, I can't watch this. I think his friends need to do an intervention with him and get him to change his career. Actually, they interviewed an expert, a rock climber, and they said, what do you, what's the most amazing thing to you about Alex Honnold? And the guy looked and he said, that he's still alive. <sighs> I mean, given the climbs he's made, it's amazing that he survived. All right, um, so... The picture that we have to climb this rock face by our own strength, with our own skill, and make progress when all of gravity, the world of flesh and the devil, are pulling us down to our own destruction, that's scary. Isn't it more powerful to look at God through Christ reaching down in the grip of grace to pull us up? But it's not that simple. He's pulling us up to give us energy to climb. And so you're not like, you know, 
paralyzed and dead and you're being dragged up. No, you are called on to press on toward perfection. There's a drive inside you to be more and more like Christ if you're genuinely born again. I want to be like Christ. And so that's what he says. I press on to take hold of that perfection for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So here's the thing. Jesus has taken hold of you so that you'll be perfect. Will you end up perfect? You think he's going to lose you? He's going to let you out. Father, I've saved 99% of those that you've given me. No, no, no. He's going to raise you up in the last day. He will succeed. But he succeeds by you coming in here and teaching like this and all that and getting busy in your own holiness, in your own sanctification. Without that, you will not see the Lord. And so it creates a drive inside you, knowing all your sins are forgiven, completely by grace through faith, you strive to not sin anymore. And you strive to put all sins to death. All of them, not some of them, all of them. That's the Christian life. And that was Paul's life. Do you see it? That's what he's talking about. Not that I have already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which. There's an aspect of Christianity that is pressing. It's a marathon to be run. The Boston Marathon went right through my hometown when I was growing up. Framingham, Massachusetts would go right through there. six-mile mark. They're still looking really good at six miles. All right? They got 20 more miles to go. The real sadistic spectators would go to the 20-mile mark, Heartbreak Hill a series of three hills. They say that the marathon is half over at the 20-mile mark in terms of how it feels to you. So you get to 20 miles, now you get another, it feels like another 20 to go. That's where the hills are. They're dropping like flies. And the people are there watching, watching them fail. What's wrong with you? Go encourage them. Some of them are there to encourage. No, no, you can do it. It's all downhill from here. Um, that kind of thing. But the idea is the Christian life is a marathon to be run. You're supposed to, as Hebrews 12 says, lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily entangles and run with endurance the race marked out before you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that he beats his body and makes it a slave lest after preaching to others he'll be disqualified. He runs with endurance the race that's marked out in front of him so that he may gain the crown, 1 Corinthians 9. And so it's a, it's a marathon race. Pressing, I press on. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? I'm pressing every day for holiness and perfection. I'm pressing for glory. I want to be like Christ in every respect. And so I'm pressing, I'm running this rate, I'm laying aside every weight, I'm beating my body and making it my slave so that I can be holy. That's what he's talking about. Now, when he say forgetting what lies behind, it's not universal. He's not saying forget everything, forget the Red Sea crossing, forget Moses, forget Jesus, forget everything that goes in the past. He's not saying that. What he is saying is don't rest on your laurels or don't get dragged down by your past sins. What happened yesterday is yesterday. Learn from it. But today is today. Jesus said each day has enough trouble of its own. Look at today. Don't look out the rest of your life. Today be holy. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today be holy. So forget what lies behind. Press on toward holiness. That's how you run the race. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I'm going to win the prize. There's an upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. In other words, that is the true Christian life. And if on some point any of you might disagree or think differently, Paul's not wrong. <laughs> Paul's a very confident teacher. You get that sense? He says, that too God will make clear to you. Not like, hey, you know, you might have a point. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm not wrong. This is how you should live. And if on some point you think differently, 
Someday God will make that clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. What you have already understood, live up to that and keep pressing. That's what he's talking about. Now in verse 17, he says, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. I don't have a lot of time to develop this, but there are two great patterns for discipleship. The Greek word here is tupos, and it has to do with how coins were struck. All right? Coins are struck by precious metal, silver or gold, being struck by a metal harder than it. You remember like Caesar's inscription or portrait and all that? How does that get in the coin? Well, this is me being a geeky mechanical engineer. This is what I do. But at any rate, the coin would be struck, and at the microscopic level, you've got highs and low, low points that make like Caesar's face, let's say, his nose, or George Washington, you know, or your, what, who's on your coin? The queen? Queen? Okay, the queen. All right, so how does it, the precious metal is always soft, okay? Silver and gold yields to the, for us, it would be hardened steel. And it must yield, okay? And so there's, the image is left. And we are to be conformed to Christ. Because it says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the two posts is the pattern. And you're supposed to conform yourself. The alternative would be to be stubborn, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, and not yield. So you're supposed to be squishy. Do you guys play, did you play with Play-Doh growing up? We used to play, do you guys have Play-Doh? I mean, it's a soft, all right. So it's soft and gushy. You got, you know, so you're supposed to be soft and yielded to God. And so he has two uses of the word tupos or pattern. The first that I, I would commend to you is 2 Timothy 1.13. He says, guard uh, what you have heard from me. Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. That's sound doctrine or what I call book learning. So you've got all those incredibly good books that Jeff's put together. That's sound doctrine and especially the Bible. Tupos, the pattern of sound doctrine. This one is the pattern of godly living, following an example. And so you need elders and role models, men and women who live out godliness ahead of you, and you follow their example. Like Paul said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So look what he says here in verse 17. Join with others in following my example and take note of those who live according to the two posts, the pattern we gave you. So that whenever you're in a discipleship relationship, there's two aspects, book learning and life learning. There's studying and then there's come over to my house and see how we live, that kind of thing. Or come out with me and we're going to go share the gospel. Follow my example. That's together, that's good discipleship. So he's commending. I just want to commend that to you. I don't have time to develop it. For as I have often told you before, and I'll say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Those are the pagans of Paul's day, and they're the pagans of our day. It's not changed. What do you think it means when Paul says their God is their stomach? Are there any people in St. John's who live like that? Who live for their appetites? who live for what they can eat and what they can sense and feel and for sexual pleasure and for success and, and all that. That's earthly living. That's how pagans live when they don't know God. When they don't know Christ, they live for their stomach. He said that's how people live. And notice he says, I say it with tears. I'm grieved that they're living like this because they're going to be condemned. They're going to be slaughtered like animals. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. That's the end. 
We are a colony of heaven. I'm not saying that national distinctions are irrelevant. I have an American passport. Um, you, I would imagine, have Canadian passports. And I think that it's fine to be uh, patriotic to some degree. But I'm a Christian before I'm an American. And I have much closer fellowship with non-American Christians than I do with the American TSA agents that wait for me in New York City when I get there, you know, and greet me like New Yorkers do. Anyway, that's another, another topic for another day. Um, but I have much closer affinity and, and love and affection with, not, with Christians from other countries than I do with, uh, and I just, there will be no uh, of that patriotism up in heaven. Those things will be obsolete. Just like every local church will be obsolete, so every national distinction. We get up to heaven and we will all be part of the true kingdom of God and of Christ. And the more you can say, our citizenship is in heaven, and citizenship meant a lot to Paul. He was a Roman citizen. It got him out of some scrapes. But he said, my real citizenship is in heaven. And someday, someday, Jesus is coming back. And when he returns, he's going to conform our lowly mortal bodies and make them like his glorious resurrection body. And that's the finish line. Close with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've had to study. There's so much in this chapter. It's so rich. I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this church, Calvary Baptist. I pray that you would give them a sense of urgency to put sin to death by the Spirit, to strive after holiness, after perfection, to press on, to take hold of perfection for which Christ has taken hold of them. I pray that they would do so knowing that they're resting on justification and that their sins are all forgiven through faith in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.